are continuing our series that we started last week on the names of God. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 3 this morning. So if you would, if you have your copy of God's Word, if you would turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 15 for us this morning, and then we'll beseech the Lord. There's a good old-fashioned word. We're going to beseech the Lord for some, some help as we walk through this passage. So if you would, stand with me as we read through Exodus chapter 3, starting at verse 1. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a land good and broad land a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would speak to us this morning, that your word would reign true in our hearts and in our minds, that we might comprehend and that we might be transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this morning that you would bless us, encourage our hearts, exhort us and challenge us that we might walk from here in a way that is honoring and holy. For your glory and honor, we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Please be seated. I read this story this week that I thought would be interesting, very fitting as we talk about the names of God. It said in the 1960s, when they ended, San Francisco 
Hyatt-Asbury district reverted to high rent and many of the hippies moved down the coast to Santa Cruz. They had children and got married too, though in no particular sequence. But they didn't name their children Melissa or Brett. People in the mountains around Santa Cruz grew accustomed to their children playing frisbee with little time warp or spring fever. And eventually moonbeam, earth, love, and precious promise all entered the public schools. That's when the kindergarten teachers first met fruit stand. Every fall, according to tradition, parents bravely apply name tags to their children, kiss them goodbye, and send them off to school on the bus. So it was for fruit stand. The teachers thought the boy's name was odd, but they tried to make the best of it. Would you like to play with the blocks, fruit stand, they offered. And later, fruit stand, how about a snack? He accepted hesitantly. By the end of the day, his name didn't seem much odder than Heather's or Sunray's. At dismissal time, the teachers led the children out to the buses. Fruit stand, do you know which one is your bus? He didn't answer. That was strange. He hadn't answered them all day, actually. Lots of children are shy, though, on their first day. It didn't matter. The teachers had instructed all the parents to write the names of their children's bus stops on the reverse side of their name tags. The teacher simply turned his name tag over, and there, neatly printed, was the word Anthony. <laughs> Seemed to fit. Got a few last. It's my, the last chuckles that usually make me laugh. I don't know if it's, you know, he who last, last got the joke last or the names of God, right? And we come to this one, which, you know, I'll admit this morning is one of those that as you spend time just trying to chew on it and work through it and understand and comprehend, it's a little bit hard to wrap your mind around. And I want to start with the text and kind of walk through the text and walk through what's going on here. And so as we start with this text, we have Moses who has uh, left Egypt. If you remember some of the story, the context of what's going on, Moses had, had, uh, had left Egypt um, because he had killed the Egyptian uh, slave master and he had run away and he found himself in the wilderness. He meets his uh, soon-to-be father-in-law, he gets married, and he's watching flocks in this land of Midian. And as he's walking through the wilderness with these flocks as a shepherd, he comes to this strange scene, and that's where the scene unfolds with this burning bush, and it's the context of what's going on. Okay, So before you understand this name, I think you really have to understand this whole context. There's a problem that we see in this story, right? It says that the Lord had heard the afflictions of his people. The problem was that the, the, the people of Israel, if you remember, if you go through Genesis, this incredible story, as, as, as you, you, it's important that you take from the beginning to the end, this book, this incredible book is one story, right? We have the, re, the, the drama of God's redemption from the beginning of creation through till the end of time when God fully uh, uh, unpacks everything before us and it's all brought to this culmination in heaven. 
But in the meantime, in Genesis, it, it talks about the famine and, and, and uh, Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery. And as uh, Joseph is unable to deliver his people by, by uh, God raising him into a position of influence and, and Joseph's brothers come seeking grain and to, to narrow and cut the shorey stort, um, the story is that the, the people of Israel, uh, literally Israel, Jacob brings his sons and they begin to dwell amongst the Egyptians. And as they do so, the nation of Israel is born and you have offspring. And eventually the Pharaoh who knew Joseph, and this is how Exodus chapter 1 starts, that Pharaoh passes away and a people takes over that no longer recognizes Joseph and his people. And they begin to enslave them. And as they become slaves to the people, it brings us to the presence of this story. And it says that as Moses is in the wilderness and he comes to this burning bush, God approaches or or Moses approaches and and God speaks to him and he says, here's the deal. I have heard my people and I'm going to bring them up out of slavery and bondage and take them to the promised land that I had promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And I'm going to bring them there. And it's all part of this grand scheme of the plan of God's redemption. And he says to Moses, you are the person I have chosen that's going to carry this out. And we read this story, and sometimes we read through uh, uh, Exodus chapter 3, and, and we didn't, we're not even going to talk about where Moses says, Who am I? I'm just a child. I can't speak. I don't have the giftings. And, and, and we come to the story, though, and so oftentimes we look at Moses and we say, Man, you are speaking to a bush which God is present in, and he's speaking to you, and he's calling you to this incredible mission and this incredible purpose, and you're sitting here questioning, and you, 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 you wonder whether or not you can accomplish this, right? And we become critical sometimes of Moses and say, man, he must have been a chicken. Moses was the messenger, and, and, and so here's right before God reveals himself in this incredible way to Moses. Moses says in these incredible words, he says in verse 13, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Brothers and sisters, this question is a question we should cling to and desire to know the answer. When somebody asks God, the creator of the universe, what is your name? What shall I call you? The answer that we receive is going to be something incredible. It's so incredible that it's the word, this this name that God pours out before us is the name that is used over 6,000 times in the Old Testament. And, and, and to put it in context of what Moses is saying here, he's, he's about ready to go into Egypt, and, and he's got no divine accompaniment. You know, he goes there and he says, I am the Redeemer that God is sending me to bring you out of Egypt. God has sent me. Can you imagine the people of Israel who have been in bondage to slavery, who have cried out in their affliction, what their response might be? Yeah, you're the self-proclaimed divinely sent one, huh? Can you imagine 
the fear Moses might have had to go to a people and say, God has sent me to tell you this. And before we get too critical with Moses, we must remember that we are sent in the exact same way, are we not? To go to a people that does not believe they have ever seen or heard God and say to them, God has sent me to you. That is our calling as believers. And what an incredible thing when we start to think about that. You know, and, and it's no different in the New Testament that people might be skeptical. They said to Jesus, in fact, his own disciples said to Jesus, show us the Father and we'll believe you. And today, I'm sure maybe you've run across people that when you begin to explain to them the truth of who God is, they might say, well, if God would just write his name in the clouds, I would believe. People are always asking. And here, how do we come to a resolution? Moses says, who shall I tell them sent me? What is your name? And we get this incredible statement. God tells Moses three truths. Three truths in this short couple of two, three verses that are so incredibly important for us. Number one, he answers him. He says in verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Pause there. God doesn't say outright his name. He says his being. He says, before I tell you what my name is, what, my, what the reality of what I want to be called, I want to tell you who I am. And he says this incredible phrase that truly is mind-blowing. And the more I've tried to sit here and figure it out this week, this past couple of weeks as I've been preparing for this, the more I think through it, the more I realize how limited my grasp is on the reality of existence, right? I don't want to get existential on you, no soaring Kierkegaard or anything like that, but just pause and, and, and start to think about what God is speaking here. And if we can somehow wrap our minds around this, because, you know, if you read the email blast, one of the things that I thought through as I began to think about this was, you know, everything has a beginning, right? We, we think of creation, and it's got a beginning. We think of, we think of a, a game, and there's got to be a first player. We think of a, a book, and it's got to have an, an introduction and a beginning. Everything has a beginning, and when we don't understand a beginning... It's a mystery. And we got to sit here and try and figure it out. And here's the reality. God says, I have always existed. I am self-existing. This I am that I am is a form of the verb to be. It expresses his self-existence. Here's what it essentially means. What God was telling Moses, I have always been I am now and I will forever be. It is his being as an absolute existence. This is who I am. You want to know? I have always been. I am now and I will forever be. Pause and think about that for an hour. Your head might explode. But then he goes on. He says, not just that, that's the first thing. He says, understand a context here. Know my being before you know my name. Second, he says, it says, and God said 
Say this to the people of Israel. You, you want me to tell you what to tell them? Tell them, I am has sent me to you. So here's what God tells Moses. He says, you want to tell them a name? Tell them this. Tell them, I am the one who is self-existing, the one who has absolute authority and being has given you the direction to go. That's some serious authority. He is still sending us today. Why do we go? We go with authority. In Matthew, as Jesus concludes his his great commission, what does he say? He says, all authority is given to me that is on earth and in heaven, and so I am sending you. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, in Jesus, in speaking to his disciples, he says, uh, 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 all authority is going to be placed upon you to go in my name. The great I am is sending you. So what God wants Moses to understand is that there is authority and there is clout here. But then he concludes this section and he says, I am has sent me to you. And he says in verse 15, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. You want to know my name? Here it is. And you're not going to recognize it in your English translation. Here's what it says. The Lord, Yahweh. Yahweh, the God of uh, your fathers, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations 6,000 times in the Old Testament. Yahweh. And if you want to know where it is, you can see it in your English translation. Usually it's a big capital L and then three uh, smaller capital O-R-D. And that comes because the Jews looked at this name, Yahweh, and they held it in such high revere and respect and reverence that they would not even pronounce it. And so when they would read the text, they would literally say Adonai which means Lord. And so they would read a text like this, and as they would read it to their, the congregation, they would say, God also said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, Adonai, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. Because they saw the name Yahweh, and in the original Hebrew, it would be transliterated to us as Y-W-H-W. And so they would just see that, and naturally they would say Adonai, which is a, a smaller version of Lord, which also means Master, and they would proclaim that, Adonai, instead of Yahweh. And part of the issue today as well, and I don't want to dive into this too much, is that um, there's confusion, you know, is it Yahweh, is it Jehovah, right? We've heard that name Jehovah a lot too. And the reality is it was probably Yahweh, but in, in, in the original language of Hebrew, they didn't have vowels. And so because nobody ever pronounced it, there wasn't a correct understanding of how to say it. And so YWHW could actually uh, be pronounced as Yehovah, not Jehovah, as us uh, English uh, people. We see the J and we think it's a just sound. It's actually Yehovah. 
but um, most people think it was Yahweh. And he says, this is my name. This is what I want to be called by. And, and it is the, the same meaning, essentially, as what we've already talked about. It's, a, it's got a form of the to be verb in there, and it's the same concept that it is forever. I am that I am. It is permanent. He says it's for all generations. It is purposeful that God gave us this name as a memorial that we can see him. And it is powerful because he is, he will be, and he will always be. This is a resource and a well of confidence for us. Okay? So that's the name, Yahweh. Essentially, it means self-existing. So what is the point to us? What is the application? What does all this mean that he is Yahweh, the great I am? And we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at this. I want to give you three particular implications that this has. And how as we look at Moses and Moses' need of somebody to give him authority as somebody to give him confidence as he goes to do a very difficult task. We can look at this name and we can look at God and see who he is and we can recognize the confidence we might have in him. Number one, Yahweh means his absolute reality. His absolute reality. He exists. He doesn't need us to defend him. He never has. He never will. He exists, and despite whether or not somebody says, I believe in God or not, it has zero, zero implications on who the reality is of what and, and his being. He exists. He has always existed. When I talk to my children about creation or when I talk to somebody about creation, you know, the question is always, well, who made God or where did God come from? And when I sit and actually contemplate that, I can't fathom it. That before everything we see here today, before everything that has been pronounced throughout history, has been recorded in the books of history, before anything, before the foundations of the world were laid, before everything, He existed. There is some serious authority in that. That He needed no one. When I create something, I rule over that something. Nobody created God. There is no beginning for him. He has always existed. He will always exist. That at the end of time, God will continue to reign over creation. And in the future, he will reign over the new creation. There is no beginning and no end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is beyond the beginning and he is beyond the end. He will always exist. And not only that, he will always exist the same. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. That's pretty 
all-encompassing, isn't it? He will never change. I don't know about you, but I am fickle when it comes to certain things. One of the things that... um, uh, (laughs) I was going to tell a story, but I don't want to throw my wife under the bus. So I'll say my kids. But you can connect the dots. Something that is frustrating for me is when we go out to eat... I have three people in my household who are very moody eaters. So one day, it's a cheeseburger. The next day, it's a taco. The next day, which I get variety. But I have to discern which mood it is in before I make a suggestion of where we might go. We are fickle people. One day we think of this, and it is our passion, it is our excitement, and then the next day, it is no more. Brothers and sisters, God never changes. He doesn't look at you and say, today I love you, tomorrow not so much. Today I'm going to send my son to redeem mankind, Eh, I don't know anymore. Today I'm going to be faithful in keeping my promises. Tomorrow, I might change them. No, he is consistent. He is and he will always be. And because he is and will always be and he is the same forever, for all eternity, brothers and sisters, can we not trust him? When we hear the name Yahweh, we should know that he absolutely is reality and that because he is absolute reality, he does not change and he will never change. We can put our hope in him no matter what it is. And so God says to Moses, he says, this is my name for all people. It never changes because I never change. Because I am consistent. His absolute reality Second, when we understand Yahweh as the self-existing one, we understand His absolute reign. Get this. He is utterly independent. He needs nothing from us. Sometimes we sit here and we think, well, God needs us to worship Him. No, He doesn't. God needs... You know, as, as a church, and one of the things that can get really frustrating for me is when we begin to try and figure out finances and we start to think of, of uh, uh, how are we going to accomplish this? Well, God doesn't need anything for us to accomplish anything. He doesn't need our skill, which he gave us, by the way. He doesn't need our money, which he gives us, by the way. He doesn't need anything from us. He is utterly independent, and if we didn't exist, he would still be glorious. <coughs> utterly independent. But not only is he utterly independent, he is utterly depended upon. Colossians 1.17 declares that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Everything is literally dependent upon him and his word. In Hebrews chapter 1, he's the radiance of God's glory, and speaking of Jesus, and he goes on, he says, and by his word he upholds all things. Literally everything depends upon Yahweh, the self-existing one. He needs nothing from us, yet we 
utterly depend on Him. And He is utterly and always right. He's utterly and always right. He's sovereign. He's wise. Because He is self-existing, He is the one who sets the standards. And everything He does is good and right and beautiful and holy. He's always right. One of the, uh, one of my favorite uh, um, devotionals is the one by a person named uh, Kalman. Can't remember the first name, but it's this thing is for me, and it, it's a devotional on on how when we look at our life and we see tragedies and we see hardships and we see trials and we see difficulties and we walk through these and and the question becomes why why me why do I need to go through this why why and it reflects back on first Kings chapter 12 I think it's verse 24 and in this story you have Solomon's son Rehoboam who comes in and utterly makes a mess of things and the kingdom is divided and Rehoboam's getting ready to go out and to recapture his ten, uh, 11 tribes that have departed And God stops him through the word of a prophet. And he said, know this, that this thing is for me. And know this, that whatever difficulties you face, whatever trials are going on in your life, this thing is from him and it is good. That's hard to comprehend sometimes. It's hard to comprehend when money is leaking out to pay bills and expenses and not coming in. It's hard to comprehend when sickness ravages the body. It's hard to comprehend, but can we remember Yahweh, self-existing one, is in absolute control and He reigns. And this thing is from Him. And it is good. And it is holy. And it is right. And so God tells Moses, this is my name set up as a memorial for all generations. So it tells us his absolute reality, it tells us his absolute reign, and it tells us his absolute richness. It is no wonder that as Paul in Romans, as he's walking through the truths of who God is and the truths of what Jesus Christ has done, he comes to the close of Romans chapter 11, and he breaks out in this anthem of worship, and he says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways. How inscrutable is his justice. Who can know the mind of God? He is incredible. His absolute richness that when we begin to examine God in the light of His self-existence and we realize that He is absolute reality, we realize that there is nothing that happens without His knowledge, that there is nothing that happens without His dependence, that there is nothing that He allows that is without His control and His reign. We should understand the richness of Him is that He is incomparable. That we ought to break out in praise. What an incredible passage when you, if you turn to Isaiah chapter 40, as the prophet begins to proclaim this truth. You have this picture of God's people suffering. And you have this, this trouble. And they look around and they say, Where is God? 
In Isaiah chapter 40, the prophet has to stand up and he has to declare and he says to the people, Behold your God. And who is this God? Starting at verse 12, he says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man has shown him in his counsel? Whom did he consult? And whom made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? And he goes on, he says, an idol? That's foolishness. His richness is proclaimed in the very being that nobody has ever taught him. Nobody has ever controlled. Nobody has ever existed beyond And not only that, but because of this, he is preeminent in value. There is nobody and there is nothing more important and more valuable in this life or the life to come than God, Yahweh. Is he worthy of our praise? Absolutely. Because there is nothing that compares to him. I was walking through this and trying to comprehend this and trying to figure out, okay, I get this. I can sort of understand these truths, which are pretty complex. And they're complex because I know my reality and my reality exists within me. But how do I take this then and apply it to my life? How do I take this as a memorial for all generations? How do I wrap myself into the context of what's going on? I think there's a few things. Number one, can we trust him? Is he worthy of our confidence? And the answer is yes, absolutely, always, for all time. This thing is from him. In that moment, can we trust him? In that moment when we don't know where the answers are going to come from, in that moment when Moses walks into the elders of the people of Israel and he says, I am divinely sent to lead you out of this bondage and slavery which you have been in for 400 years, I am here. Can we trust you? For I am has sent me. In that case, yes. Brothers and sisters, can we trust him with our brothers and sisters that don't know him? and our family that don't know Him? Can we trust Him with a neighbor that is sweet and dear but does not know the Lord? I am has sent me. We can trust Him. He is worthy of our confidence. Second, and this is the one that breaks down for me so many times, is He your everything? Is he your everything? You know, my reality is what I see and do. It's a world of me. 
I am a selfish person. I know what I want. I go for what I want. And my reality exists within me. But it is so much bigger. It is so much bigger than me. Every year about this time, I struggle with some form of, I don't know if you'd call it a seasonal depression. About this time every year, and, and, and it comes and, and it seems like it, it's the beginning of the year is this all exciting time, everything's new, and then I think everything just kind of hits to a halt. And I sit here and I d- just kind of dissect that. Why? Where does this come from? And it comes from a reality that is centered around me and not the one who is self-existing. Not the one that I was created to worship, but me. And I look at the things that I want to accomplish this year and I haven't accomplished them and I get discouraged. And I find it interesting that when, when the psalmist struggles with depression, when people in the Word struggle with depression, the answer is this. Look outside of the reality of you and look to God and put your hope in Him. Because you don't exist for yourself. But we have made our reality self. And He is far greater and grander and worth more than self. And I would just ask this as a final concluding thought, is how much of our reality is done without even giving thought of Him? In our daily life. I find it interesting that in Hebrews chapter 11, this great chapter, the the chapter of faith that we love to call it, the heroes of the faith, we look at it and we see all these men and women that are defined as having great faith. And at the very beginning of the book, in in the very beginning of the chapter, in Hebrews 11, we say this is our definition of faith. Faith is having our hope on the substance of things not yet seen, things not yet accomplished. And and you have this one verse packed away in the midst of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. It says that without faith it is impossible to please God. And in order to please Him, we must believe that He exists and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him diligently. And yet we walk through our life, and, and maybe I shouldn't say we, I walk through my life with my reality of me. And I can say all I want, I believe in God, but how oftentimes do I give more thought about the color of carpet than on the presence of Yahweh. How often do I give more care and thought on getting my job done well, which is not a bad thing, but I do so without giving thought to Him. And yet He pierces the darkness of our cold reality, and He declares, I am and I will always be forever with you. Yahweh, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, and the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.
We thank you that outside of you there is no reality. And people may deny you, but it doesn't change the truth. That you have been for all time right there. That you will always be forever unchanged, constant, and sovereign. And Father, I pray that this morning our hearts would be set on the fact that you didn't just stay away. You sent your Son, Jesus Christ. And He declared over and over again, I am, I am, I am. And before Abraham, the, the father of what we call the Hebrew faith, before he was, Jesus declared, I am. And he came and he lived and he died, suffering a cruel death that he did not deserve. That he might bear the burdens and the sins of all and make atonement with the self-existing God to declare righteous and holy in His sight all who would believe. So Lord, we pray this morning that our hope would be in Jesus Christ and in His righteousness and His blood poured out on our behalf. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today that does not believe that, that they would turn and trust in You. And Father, may our confidence, our hope, and our worth in you be a recognition that you are worthy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.